You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy Monday, everybody, and uh, welcome back to the show. Now, I don't know about you guys, but every once in a while... After the kids are in bed, after the wife's in bed, the TV's off, I'm sitting in my recliner, and I'm scrolling through Instagram, and I'm looking at all the big antlers, the the trophies throughout the years, you know, guys finding giant sheds, or guys up in the mountains, you know, and I'm, I'm daydreaming that maybe someday my life could be like that, and uh, I think it was, oh, this was like several weeks ago, uh, when I actually saw this picture of this guy behind a giant mule deer and I just glanced at it and for one brief moment I thought that this guy was me it looked you know like just glancing that guy's got a big red beard I have a big red beard Um, and it wasn't me obviously but I had this you know this little daydream or this little thought in my head that maybe someday I could be behind a, a mule deer of that caliber. So what I did was I reached out to uh, this guy. His name's Zach Salmon. Zach. <laughs> His name is Zach Salmons. I'm sorry. I, I can't even talk English sometimes, but Zach is from Kansas and uh, he's an avid whitetail and mule deer hunter. And this Thanksgiving, he was able to connect on an absolute giant mule deer and uh, so I I reached out to him asked him if he wanted to come on the podcast and share his story and he said yes so that's what we're going to be talking about today I don't know about you guys but as a hunter I've hunted whitetails now for for so many years and it's fun and I really haven't shot a a quote-unquote giant buck I've shot mature deer but not nothing really big in the antler department and as you guys know I'm I'm not really I really don't care about antler size I care about experiences and uh in the past couple of years 3 years 4 years I've been really thinking about expanding to western hunts and uh so conversations like this today that I have with Zach are 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 really interesting not only for myself and that's kind of how I schedule these podcasts is um, stories that I feel like I would want to know and luckily you guys 
um, seem to like them as well. So that makes me happy. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast today, I sat down with John Livingston from Deer Lab and asked him if he could provide us with a bit of a success story of one of his customers using Deer Lab. We get testimonies all the time coming in, um, but one that stands out from all the rest is the Dan Kaufman buck, which was shot uh, last year. It's a free range buck. Uh, Dan was in Ohio. He had a farm in Ohio, and uh, the buck that he shot was a had a Pope and Young net score of 287 and 5 eighths of an inch. It was a monster of a buck. And um, I was talking to Dan about, okay, tell me, please, how did you use Deer Lab? And he said that he just used Deer Lab for this particular buck. He was targeting it, and that was the only buck that he was going after. And he realized after using Deer Lab that the buck, which is called the Dan Kaufman buck, um, basically only moved during daylight hours with a full moon. And so he was like just racking his brain trying to figure out how to get to this buck. He was, he was bedded down in a big bean field in the middle of the bean field, and um, he just wouldn't move. And so using Deer Lab, he realized that this buck was only moving during a full moon, and so the next full moon came about, he went out and sure enough, he, I think it was like a 15 yard shot that he had for him. So that was kind of our, you know, one testimony that stands out above everything else It's the number two buck shot by bow in the world. If you guys want to find out more information about Deer Lab, visit DeerLab.com slash nine fingers. And uh, the best thing to do is to... Go to that URL, deerlab.com slash nine fingers, and look around what they offer. And then because you are a nine finger chronicles listener, you will get a free 30 day trial period. Uh, so that's a, a, a long period of time that you guys can take and enter all the trail cameras all the trail camera pictures that you have throughout the years into this, and it will tell you just tons of information about uh, the deer patterns on the farms that you hunt, um, when they move, how they move in, in regards to moon phases, pressure, wind, all these, all this information can uh, help you target uh, potentially the buck that you've been chasing for several years. So uh, go, go test that out. Finally, I'm done talking, so let's get into today's podcast with Zach Sammons. All right, on the phone with me now, all the way from Kansas, is Zach Sammons. How you doing today, Zach? Good, Dan. How are you today? I'm doing uh, doing pretty good. Now, I'm looking at a picture. Actually, I, I found it when I was uh, flipping through Instagram one day, and uh, you shot a gigantic mule deer. Uh, and that's what stopped me. But then looking closer at this picture, me and you have something in common. Is, is the fact we're both big gingers what we have in common? <laughs> well, I don't have red hair, but I have oh, okay. I have a big red beard. There you go. So so we we uh, we could be related distantly somehow. 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 Yeah. Well, I tell you what. Um, Let's kick this uh, podcast off like we do most podcasts. Uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us where you're from and what do you do for a living? 
Hi, Dan. Well, I'm originally from Logan, Kansas, which is Midwest Kansas, and uh, I was born and raised there. Right now, I'm actually a college student. About four years ago, I decided I was done working my butt off, and I wanted to kind of hit the outdoor industry, so I quit everything I was doing, went back to school, uh, got an associate's in wildlife outfitting uh, operations, and then I moved to the K-State program, which is a newer program. We've only had about six classes come out of there, and it's wildlife outdoor enterprise management. Okay. And what does, uh, what does that degree cover? That covers pretty much, you can go so many different ways with that degree. So you're going to hit your basis wildlife operations, uh, anything outdoor recreational from hunting to running a five-star resort in Colorado. It's going to give you a business, uh, either a business degree or a business minor, or you could hit an agronomy minor. You could hit a biology minor, hospitality minor, and just pretty much run with whatever you want to make of it and then have the networking and the opportunity through the college to get hit up with these big, uh, big time internships and then go to bigger places to, to work and manage. Okay. So what, what were you doing before you decided to go back to school? I was a lineman. I was a power lineman for about four years. I was okay. uh, running state to state fixing power lines. And uh, right before my wedding, I looked at my wife and said, Hey, you know, I really want to stay home, uh, start a family, you know, lay down some roots, but I want to be part of the hunting industry as well because right. I, I love it so much and it's my passion. Gotcha. So you decided I, I want to be in the hunting industry and I am going to go back to school to do it. Yep. Yep. I'm pretty much going to get a degree that says I, I know what I know and I can do, uh, you know, things that I'm capable of and have that piece of paper to pretty much reassure anybody that's looking at me or wants to uh, take me on as far as an employer that they know they can trust me and I have a background in it. Gotcha. Cool. Well, that's, uh, that's one step extra than most people in the hunting industry try to do. So, uh, good luck to you in that Avenue. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So, but the reason that you're on today is because I, I do want to get into this giant giant mule deer that you ended up uh, taking. But uh, before we get to that, um, let's talk about some of the areas that you hunt. You grew up in, you said, Midwest, mid to western Kansas, right? Yeah, we're pretty much right there to where you're west, but you're not far west like eastern Colorado west. Okay, I gotcha. So how how far are you from the let's say like the Colorado border or the, uh, the Nebraska border. We're only about 30 to 40 minutes from the Nebraska border, but we're three, three hours from the Colorado okay. border. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this terrain, this, the land that, uh, is out there. Um, I've been to Western Nebraska and my uncle lives in Southeastern uh, Kansas, not anything really wooded except the, the, you know, the, the creek systems or maybe a yep. old abandoned farmstead. So talk to us a little bit about the terrain. Tell us the features and all that stuff. So we're mixed up right there to where, where, where the, the county lines meet. We have crop fields and then there's, of course, your your small creek and river systems that have bunches of trees and alfalfa bottoms and corn and bean bottoms. But if you go just 
three or four miles west of where the county line is, that's where we open up into these big rolling plain pastures that people run their cattle on. And there's a huge drainage system out there that has, that has huge ravines with no roads running through it because it's pretty rough. And these guys have these big cattle pastures out there. So it's sometimes it's hard fought to find permission, but once you get permission, it's easy to go out there. And the next thing you know, you spent five days in the middle of nowhere. Right. So, uh, so where this mule deer was living was this open cattle pasture, any, any type of trees or, um, no trees. There's, there's a creek that runs. There's a creek that runs to the, to the North there, but pretty much you're going to have your whitetails down there. They're, they're beginning to work their way out into these big pastures and kind of pushing our mule deer farther West. But, but for the CRP fields and, and big rolling pastures is where my mule deer usually stay. Okay. So if they're not in the in, if they're not in the crop fields when the crops are out and the milo's out and the corn's out you you'll drive around all early season and barely get a glimpse at a nice mule deer until right. until the crops get cut out and then they move into the into the waterways they move into the CRP fields and into the big pastures. Gotcha. So I know that uh, you kind of mentioned this a, a couple sen- seconds ago about whitetails pushing mule deer out. Now I've heard several reasons, you know, maybe why, but in the, the one reason that I heard was that uh, the whitetail is just a little bit more of a aggressive of an animal. What do you see while you're out there? Well, if you would ask me six, seven years ago, if the whitetails would push out the mule deer, I would have told you you're crazy because I would have tree stands set up in some of my wooded areas and you would see a nice, whitetail buck and then 30 minutes later you'd have a mule deer cruising by so we were seeing both species within the same area well in the last six years our whitetail densities have went up and with the whitetail densities going up i've seen my mule deer densities push farther north and west into those more open pasture huge crop field areas gotcha and is it is it because they're a little bit more aggressive? I mean, is that what you've seen? Have you ever seen a whitetail push out a mule deer over a food I've source never, or something like that? I've, I've grunted in some mule deer to, with rattling and grunting where I expect a whitetail to be, but I've never seen a whitetail, mature whitetail buck and mature, mature mule deer buck just straight get after it. I, I mean, I've seen whitetail does with muley fawns or muley does, and I've seen whitetail bucks with bedded down with muley does i mean so at the time i was like well they're not pushing each other out they're they're coexisting but now not have seen it personally the whitetail aggress more over the mule deer but seeing seeing boundaries from my mule deer where in one place i could was always guaranteed a nice mule deer and now he's pushed out into a completely different property gotcha so i want to talk a little bit about both the habitat in, in a little bit more detail um, of both the whitetail and the, the mule deer in your area. And, and we'll start with the whitetail. Talk to us a little bit about where they're bedding, where they're going, like their travel corridors, where they're, where they're going to, um, to feed at night. And then uh, the same thing with the mule deer. 
So we come from a huge agriculture population here in Kansas. Uh, we have a lot of cow calf operations. So we have not as, we're, we don't have the big circles and, uh, not like, you know, Nebraska would, we have all crick and dry land, uh, corn, beans, wheat, or mostly our County, we're a wheat production County, but this year we had so much rain, everybody planted corn. So I was guiding the hunt earlier this year thinking I could get one of my wounded warriors on a nice mule deer with a muzzle loader. When in fact the corn was so good this year and everywhere that we couldn't find a mule deer. So we resorted to shooting a whitetail, but the whitetails are going to, are going to use those Creek and river corridors. They're going to bed, you know, on, on your slopes, they're going to get into the CRP fields. A good CRP field is, is with crop on either side and a river on the bottom is where you're going to find most of your whitetails. And uh, they're going to hit your food sources like your beans, your corn, your Milo. Milo's huge out there. At the same time, it becomes a food source. It also becomes a bedding area. So early season, you can sit up on a hill and glass, you know, three or four mature whitetail bucks with velvet just pushing through the Milo. Okay. And this would, as, as far as whitetails are concerned, this would be, like you said earlier, in the, in those creek systems and waterways in the lower land? Yep, yep. That'd be anywhere you got water moving. Uh, when rut hits, you can see a lot more deer out in the, if you have a, a water system, as far as a flowing riparian area, you're going to find your, your whitetails in there. When the rut comes, I, I notice a lot of those big bucks will push does out into these huge pastures and it's nothing for me to be hunting a mule deer and get on a nice whitetail. They, they're, they're moving and pushing out into these pastures more often than they used to. Okay. So I know in Nebraska, uh, when I went, I don't know if things have changed in the last two or three years, I could use my buck tag for either a whitetail or a mule deer. Uh, is that the same way in Kansas or is it two different tags? So if you get the Kansas has the, the whitetail any season tag. So if you get the whitetail tag, you can hunt any season, a whitetail is available. So bow, muzzleloader, rifle or you can get a rifle only tag unless you're a landowner you can't have an either species rifle tag unless you draw for it okay. and those are hard to come by but if you buy a bow only you can hunt either species so that only limits you to hunting with a bow but at the same time you can hunt either or and you can only kill one mature buck in in a single year gotcha and, that, and that's the same thing now when you say mature buck are there antler restrictions no, not not anywhere I'm aware of in the state okay. of Kansas have I ever ran into any antler restrictions. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Now getting back to this, uh, you know, where these deer are living, talk to us a little bit about these um, this these mule deers. And if you want to use uh, your specific buck as an example of where these, where these uh, mule deer were bedded, what their food source is, where they're traveling throughout the day. Okay. So with... With the deer I encountered this year, we had milo and cornfields uh, between two agriculture fields, milo on the south half, corn on the north half. Uh, the north half was actually right on the edge of a river system, and there's a huge, probably two-mile pasture, strip of pasture in between there 
and uh, he was basically bouncing off all the agriculture fields and bedded down in the CRP grass or with does in the actual pasture is where I was getting on him. So he was, he was actually living a month like inside of a cattle pasture. Yeah, basically he was bouncing from pasture to pasture and in the mornings and in the evenings, I was finding him, uh, in the agriculture fields feeding with the does. Okay. Now when, when we think, when I think like a cattle pasture here in Iowa, I think like 40 acres, but that's not the case out West. How, how big of a, a farm are you, are you working with out there or a combination uh, of farms or whatever? Uh, this big pasture in particular was actually a full section mm-hmm. and it wasn't laid out side by side. It was two, uh, half sections laid out long ways. So it was longer than it was wide. Okay. So if you took a, if a you sex- get into, so if you took a section and you cut it in half and then stacked it on top of each other, that's what, yep. that's what you're working with. Okay. Yep. And we're the reason he, he likes it. So the mule deer are going to push away from any road system for the white tunnels, you know, they get in the trees. They don't usually care. Right. My mule deer, this one in particular, wasn't being very smart. I was catching them on a public throwaway almost every other day. I watched him cross it three times and I was like, Oh, I'd love to let you go another year. You know, not anybody's going to look at that deer and be like, oh, I'm going to let him go another year. I didn't want to, but I knew if he did go another year, he was going to be a monster. But yeah. I knew if the opportunity, you know, come across, I was going to throw an arrow at him. And uh, he, was, he wasn't he was being very smart. I was I was getting on him, crossing roads, and, and I knew pretty much after four days of seeing him, I knew pretty much where he was going to be. I just knew if I got in front of him, that was going to be the day. I was going to get a shot at him. Okay. So, you know, being that this buck was visible, uh, to, to kind of a road system, did you know of any other first, did you know of any other hunters out there? And second on, on these properties that you hunt is, is there any hunting pressure from any other hunters? Yeah, I actually called a, a longtime friend to get permission on this piece of property. I've only been hunting it for two years. He hunt. He's an avid bow hunter. He sticks basically down on the river system, hunting whitetails out of tree stands and ground blinds. Uh, I just said, "Hey, can I get everything to the north of that?" And I'll, you know, work work the pasture. I'm like, I'll stay out of your hair as far as whitetail is concerned. I just, you know, have had a hankering for mule deer ever since I noticed them kind of pushing out of our area. Yeah. Uh, with we get tons of rifle hunting pressure okay uh, especially during during the road you know not everybody's the same hunting style not everybody's brought up the same way but but we get a lot of road pressure uh when rifle season comes around and uh i knew if i didn't get this deer before rifle season i probably was never going to see him again okay so I don't really have a lot of bow hunting pressure, a lot of spot and stock pressure. I'll get every once in a while, we'll get a guy from Colorado or Illinois or Wyoming or Iowa or, you know, Nebraska that, that gets a tag and comes out and, and, and tries to, you know, get out and spot and stock. But other than that, we get more pressure from our pheasant hunters pushing them around than anything else. Gotcha. So, you know, back to this particular buck, um, 
he was bedded on one side of a road and crossing uh, to another side, right? Yep. Okay, so he was he was um, going to a food source. I take it. Yeah, yeah. He was he was in a big pasture that was unaccessible by me or pretty much anybody else, and he was coming to the food sources in the evenings. I'd catch him in the evenings and in the mornings right before dark. The the reason I pretty much was getting on him daily is because I had a big group of does working this pasture, and it was dead center of rut. So he was going like crazy chasing does. Okay. So what? Uh, when is that rut? The same time as whitetails? Yep, it hits just about the same time every year. They'll be uh, both species will be going like crazy, uh, chasing does and running around, and it's just it's beneficial always to get out of the pickup and I'll just walk back and forth on these big, big sections, walking the hills and the systems, just stopping and glassing until I see somebody bedded down. Cause usually a buck will have a single doe bedded down as far as whitetail. But when you get in the mule deer, he'll usually have like eight or nine does bedded down. Gotcha. So talk to me a little bit more in detail about, they're where they bed um like are they bedded in on like the sides of hills because i'm i'm not too you know i don't have too much experience as a a a western hunter as far as the the plains are concerned or these the the type of terrain that you hunt so let's talk a little bit about that that bedding area where are they bedding how do they bed is there a certain side as far as i mean do they take in wind or sun or um or is it food source? I mean, where are they bedding? How are they bedding? That kind of stuff. Okay, so the topography where I'm at is just huge river, huge ravines with river with drainages to the river. So we get a lot of rolling hills with washout uh, on the side, like washout cliffs where the water used to travel through, and uh, pond systems in the bottom where people have put a dam and had just the outwash come into their, into their pond. The, the mule deer, we were in yucca country. So we got some yuccas, we have, you know, fence lines and we have plum thickets. So the mule deer really like to get in these little pockets of plum thickets on waste ground where it's not really pasture. It's not really agriculture. It's just these little pockets that the farmers or the ranchers don't fence in that are on the edges of their agriculture fields with plum thickets and uh, yuccas. And they'll get into there on the side hills. They'll bed down in fence lines. Pretty much anywhere there's a cut, they're going to get in out of the wind. Usually the wind's blowing pretty good out there. Uh, Anywhere they can get their head down and out of the wind for a while or basically where they're not going to see anything besides maybe a coyote every once in a while. Okay. So as a hunter, you're, where do you start? I mean, if you're, when you're going into an area, like you said, you walk up and down and just glass, this guy, this particular buck has a giant rack. I mean, was he easy to spot when he was bedded? I mean, was, was his antlers clear above the, the, the vegetation or, or did it take some, some time to actually find this deer? What? I had no idea this. I hunted this whole area last year 
Dan, and I had no idea. I never saw this deer last year. I had no idea where he came from. It was, I, the first time I found him, I actually had a buddy hunt with me and I didn't even take my bow. I had missed a, a nice mule deer earlier that day. I let, I let my emotions get the best of me. And, uh, I hit a patch of grass that I didn't see in between me and a, a, another deer. And we found the arrow kind of trailed him for a little bit, realized I didn't hit him, didn't get a shot, came back to the truck. And I, across the way, like a mile and a half away, I was like, there's a nice buck up on that hill. Let's go check him out. And by the time we worked into a hundred yards from him, I pulled my binoculars up and noticed what he was. And that's when I had to pick my jaw up off the ground <laughs> and decide I needed to go, go back to the truck and try to get my bow. And the hunter I had with me was a good friend of mine. It was his first time out there. He realized what kind of deer we were, you know, approaching. So he's like, Hey, I'll, I'll put my stuff on hold. If you want to put a, a stock on this deer. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I actually had to sneak back to the truck, which the does had beat me to the water drainage to the truck. So I ended up having to belly crawl all the way to the truck, pull my, my bow out of the truck, uh, hook on a heads up decoy to my bow so I could try to work into to this buck and get in the fence line in the midst of all this he started pushing to the west and I in bed down and once I watched him bed down I regrouped got my win right worked out a strategy got into 40 yards he had changed his bed and actually I think he knew I was there because he went from bedded down in a place where I could have killed him to bedding down in a place where he saw me before I even got there. Gotcha. So how many encounters did you have with this particular buck before you ended up shooting him? I had three blown stocks. Okay. I had one at 40 that I got on him. He was in the tall weeds. He saw me coming. He had eight does with him. He busted out and I watched him run off the property and I thought I'd, I, I knew right then I probably would never see him again until after season, unless I got lucky. So did, uh, did, the, how many days was this? You had three blown stocks over how many, how many days? Let's see. I was home due to filming and running around all over the country this year. I only had 12 days to hunt this year. So I was putting all my, all my eggs in one basket and I I had a friend come in. I had seven days with him where we were trying to get on a couple nice bucks. This deer in particular, I hunted for four straight days Got as it. hard as I could. And I, 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 I killed him on the fourth day. Okay. So when did you know that this buck existed? When, what day, month? I mean, was it during the hunting season when you found him or did you notice this buck in the summertime? Nope. Nope. I tried to get out and stalk or spot any deer early season in velvet, trying to, you know, put all my ducks in a row and see what kind of hit listers I have as, you know, if you were to put a hit list together and, and kind of see what was in the area and what was working, what crops they are. I usually try to do that every year, just like everybody does scouting their whitetails. I put trail cameras out had no idea this buck was in the area. And, uh, the first day I got on him, the beginning of the four day stint where I hunted him, I actually put my buddy on him and got to a hundred yards. And that's when I knew what this deer was. As soon as I put up, you know, my binoculars and saw what he had, which was stuff everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I knew, I knew, I knew it would be a hard time for me to shoot any other deer besides that one. I kind of, 
kind of put all I, I wanted to go after him. And that was the only deer I wanted to go after. Okay. So is, I mean, do you go, cause you're a hunter, you hunt whitetails and muleys. How do you determine what to go after? Just whatever is there at the time, like this, cause, cause this buck was uh, how many, how many hours or how many minutes away from where you actually lived? Uh, from where I actually, it's to the, my mom and dad's house where I usually go back and hunt because, you know, I've grown up there. I've known the area my whole life. I've always hunted there. It's, it's three hours and 15 minutes. And then I drive out and and get permission and kind of know where all my deer are. As far as my whitetails are concerned, I put out tree stands. Uh, I got numerous people that come hunt with me. You know, my, my wife hunts, my brother-in-law, my sister, my dad, I have numerous friends that if they draw a tag in Kansas out of staters that might come hunt with me, I set up all my tree stands for the whitetails and trail cameras and do that. And then I also go and check out all my mule deer just in case I don't want ever want to just have a whitetail tag and have a 200 inch mule deer or just buy, you know, just get a mule deer rifle tag and have, have a 200 inch whitetail. I, I usually try to keep all my options open, and as long as as uh, I'm trying to shoot a mature buck every year, I'm happy with that. Okay. So, what are what what's the quality of the mule deer in the in the area where this guy was at? I mean, did you have you ever ran into mule deer this big before, or is this guy by far the the biggest that you've seen? I've I've ran into a couple bigger than this one and and run like heck for for the whole entire year trying to you know hunt these deer when i get on a big deer like this i i have i get tunnel vision i have a hard time seeing any other deer after after i see a deer like this uh i had got on let's say oh probably five years ago i had one that was a 215, 220 inch that I got on and shot at 38 yards and I hit him in the shoulder blade and I watched him run over the hill and I never saw him again. Yeah. I've never seen a picture of him, heard of him. I walked for the next three weeks. I walked and walked and walked looking for him and I never once found him. Uh, I had a big one that I actually got kicked off a property after the farmer saw him. (laughs) I had full permission and and I called him top secret because I knew, I knew where he was, and I wasn't going to tell anybody. And once the farmer saw him, he kicked me off the property for that entire year. And yeah. and I never saw hiding or hair of that deer or saw pictures of that deer after I got kicked off. And then uh, actually, the the day we got on the one I shot, I missed a one ninety six by five mule deer at 30 yards after I hit that patch of grass and I was just sick to my stomach. Cause I've been, I put a lot of effort in getting my bow ready. I put a lot of effort into, you know, getting physically ready. I just come back from New Mexico on a mule deer hunt. So I was running and I was in really good shape. I knew my bow was on and, and I knew what I needed to do to shoot this deer. But in the, in the haste of everything, I didn't see the patch of grass that I hit with my arrow and missed him. So I was pretty distraught about that. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about how you kind of, how you, you go about a stock, a stock. 
right? So you glass the buck, he's bedded down, right? And then it, are most of your stocks, I mean, do most of your stocks take place while the buck is bedded or some of these evenings or morning hunts when they're on their feet still? What are, what's the percentage split wise? So when I get on a buck and I'm watching them on the feet, I'm looking at does, I'm looking where's the closest place he could go to bed. And from that moment, I'm trying to get in front of him because these deer, when they're bedded down, especially with, with those or other bucks, when they're in their bachelor groups, they're really hard to get on They're Those, when they, when they're, you know, six set of eyes or 12 set of eyes watching every single direction and you're in the middle of a pasture, they, they're almost impossible to get on. So I try to, if I know, I try to watch them till they bed down. If they're in a good spot to stock up on them, I'll try to make a stock. If they're not on a good stock, I usually leave them, come back, and try to get in between them and where they want to go. Because as soon as you do that, you you have a really good chance at a shot. And I knew after three blown stocks and maybe pushing it a little too hard with this deer, I I had told, you know, talking to my buddies, my my dad, and my grandpa, I told them, I said, you know if this deer can mess up and I can get in front of him and know where he's going to go, I'm probably going to get a shot and kill this deer. And the morning I got on him, I did actually get in front of him. I knew the ravine he was taking. I knew the food source he was going to. And he, he came right out in front of me, had no idea I was there. And that's when I killed him. Is that because you've watched him do that several times before in that, in that four day period? I, no, I never got I never got on him. I knew there I knew there was corn on the north side and I knew we were right in the middle of the property. I actually pulled up, parked my truck. I was sitting there, you know, saying a little prayer talking about how much, you know, I was thankful for because it was Thanksgiving morning and uh it was really foggy and I couldn't see nothing. It was legal shooting light, but but it wasn't because I couldn't see anything. It was so foggy. And and I'm getting my stuff around and I shut my door and I'm getting ready to walk into this pasture, just kind of glass around and right there coming across from the pasture. I don't have permission on this, buck crossed the road and jumped into the pasture. I had permission on. And, and once I saw him jump the fence, I knew there was two ravines and there was only one place they met up. So I just, I just hauled, hauled to the bottom of the ravine where they meted, where they met. And, uh, gave him some time and he came out and switched ravines on me and walked right out in front of me at 40 yards and, and kind of quartered away at 50. And that's when I took the shot. Okay. So you had three blown stocks previous to, you know, you ended up on the fourth and final, uh, fourth and final one, you ended up killing him, but how far after these blown stocks, would he travel? I mean, when you say, when I say blown stocks, did, did he bust you and take off running or blown stocks? Like, Hey, uh, it just got too dark one night. The first, the first stock I got blow, I got blown by his lead doe and I had a heads up decoy on my bow and she didn't like that, but she wasn't downwind of me. And he, she was, she was in heat in estrus and he followed her all the way to me. I busted him at 40 yards. 
I busted her at 40 yards with him. She came back in to almost 50 yards downwind and brought him with her. He came all the way down. I had my bow at full draw. I was thinking about it. The wind was blowing like crazy, and I just let down because I didn't want to take a, a questionable shot. After she got winded me, I watched him run off the property. Uh, I had to leave that night for some family stuff. I came back the next day in the evening after some family stuff and got on him in the cornfield. So he probably, from crossing the road, going a half mile down, and then back to the cornfield from where I initially blew him, he was probably two miles to the to the north of there. Okay. And then the, what about the, the second and third blown stocks? So the second, the second, the third blown, the second blown stock was, uh, the fourth one, the first one was when the doe busted me, they went over the hill. I came back over the hill because I knew they didn't know what I was and they just kind of were uncomfortable. When I got on that doe and she came in to 50 yards that's the second stock the third stock was that next evening i got him on got in on him on the cornfield took off after him and he got out of there before before i could get to him and it got dark and i i just backed out because i didn't have a shot okay all right so now now we fast forward to this um to this, uh, the, the evening that you ended up killing him and he's heading up to this cornfield out of one of these ravines. He's out 40 yards. Where, where were you hiding behind? I mean, were, were you in some, some weeds and some bushes? Because the picture that I'm, I'm looking at right now, I'm looking in the background of it and it doesn't look like there's hardly anything for you to, to hide behind. So this, you know, buck would have spotted you fairly easy. Um, kind of walk us through how, I mean, how he didn't see you, where your position was, were you shooting up or down? Okay. Well, I saw him cross the road and, uh, and, you know, I said a little prayer right there that he pretty much jumped the fence and come onto the property I had permission of. When he went to jump the fence, he caught his front leg in the top wire and flipped over and was laying there stuck in the fence. And, And I said, you know, after all this work put in, you know, Lord, please just let him get out so I can fair chase this guy because I really, I'm not going (laughs) to shoot him out of this fence. So I put my bow down and grabbed a set of pliers and was like, okay, you know, if worse comes to worse and he's stuck in there, I'll just cut the fence and get on him another day, uh, make sure he's all right. And, uh, and, you know, I kind of put my bow down and I sat there and watched him. He got up pulled his foot and his rack out of the fence and kind of shook it off and took off down the ravine. So as soon as he did that, I took off down the other side. Uh, the wind was right in my face, waited on him thinking he would come down the ravine to me and he didn't. So I, I pushed to the South to a big bowl where that was out of the wind. And he was bedded down on the side of that bowl out of the wind for a while. And I thought at the time he was the only deer in that bowl and I was about 70 yards away and I was on my belly. Everything, I was laid down because like you said, there was nothing to hide behind out there. I watched him get up, work his way down to the draw. I was waiting for him to come out on either side so I could try to see where he was coming. As I moved down the ravine to get a better look, I, I saw two does and they were 
they were luckily looking the other way because if they would have been looking my way, I'm pretty sure the hunt, that stock would have been completely over. As I saw the does, I laid down. I was on my, my back, and I started scooting down the hill on my back with my bow. I had taken my pack off. I had a rangefinder, my bow, and I was scooting closer to a couple couple trails the does were on. Uh, I I got within 30, 40 yards of a couple, couple trails, uh, ranged them, and I saw his antlers come up over the, the ravine and he was on the 40 yard trail. And, and I, I knew this was pretty much going to be the best shot I had at him. He didn't know I was there. It was cloudy. I had the wind in my face and he was kind of looking at those does following them. When I come to full draw, he just stopped and uh, walked straight away to the 50 yard trail and then went up a side hill. So I was actually shooting up and, uh, he stopped on that side hill and I, I let the arrow fly and, and took him in the bottom chamber of the heart. Oh, nice. So once you released the arrow, um, and you saw that you made contact with him, did he run over the top of the hill or did he just, I mean, did you see him die in sight? He ran over the top of the hill and he stood there and he hunched up really, really hard. And, and I knew, you know, I, I usually shoot a Luminoc or a Nocturnal, so I know where my arrow's going, and we're usually filming, so uh, we usually, you know, it makes for the best camera angle when you can see, see the arrow make contact with the deer. And I actually didn't have any at the time, so I just went out. I didn't, I didn't see. I knew I hit him because I could hear my arrow hit him, but I didn't know where I hit him because it was so cloudy. When he hunched up, I was like, okay, I need to, you know, maybe go get a a better shot on him. And I ran up over the hill. And when I come up over the hill, he was 60 yards from where I shot him bedded down on the side. I was like, well, you know, obviously it's a mortal shot. He's, he's laid down. And, and about that time I come up over the hill, I watched his head kind of lay over and he laid down. And, and at that point I, you know, I had to call my wife and I was just tickled pink. I, I called her and, and, uh, pretty much lost my mind on the phone call and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, praising the Lord and, and, and jumping around doing a little happy dance. And right. It, I was, I was pretty amped up. So I take it, this is the biggest mule deer you've ever shot with a bow. Yeah. This, this is the, the biggest mule deer I've ever shot, uh, with a bow and recovered. So. Okay. So what is the, you, you've been out there hunting mule deer for a while now. What's your second biggest mule deer? I mean, does he compare to this one at all, or is he much smaller? He's much smaller. He well, he he's a hundred and fifty-eight incher that I've I've taken pictures and and blown stocks on probably ten or twelve bigger mule deer than this one, uh, or bigger than the one I had shot. My first one was 158 inch mule deer. That was, you know, a three and a half year old. And that's when I was getting started with a bow and was, was bloodthirsty and on the hunt for anything. And I had taken a couple other people on hunts that I kind of guided me and my dad went out and he shot a 180, uh, mule deer. And I've been around all these big mule deer, but lately i've been kind of really figuring out how, what makes them tick and instead of running in there and blowing them out of the area i kind of sit back 
I'm more methodical about how and when I'm going to stock the deer. So I'm not pushing them off my property. So then it almost sounds to me like you take your time, you figure kind of a deer out, you sit back, but then when it's time to go in for the kill, your balls to the wall. Is that accurate? Go like, yeah, you go like hell and, and it works some of the time. It's either you didn't go fast enough and they're already past you or you went too hard and they saw you get there and they're, they're gone. It, mm-hmm. It's, it's so wishy-washy with these critters and they and they have, you know, that sixth sense about them, especially when they got does with them. They, it's, it's crazy how one thing will work and then the next thing won't, yeah. but that one thing worked that one time. So it should work this time, but it doesn't, it, it, it it's just the stars align sometimes and then the stars don't align other yeah. times. So how many, how many deer, mule deer, whitetail animals, period, I, I guess, have you been successful with, uh, first, you know, as your, you know, as a spot and stock hunter? As a spot and stock hunter, I've had success through guiding and hunting and Cause when I'm not, when I'm not hunting, I'm usually, I usually put others, I try to put others before me if they, if they need help and they come out and I try to take them hunting and get them a deer. And then I kind of clean up at the end of the year when everybody's done, as far as my wife, my son, you know, we, we try to go all in hunting as a family. And as far as this year, every deer we killed in Kansas was a spot and stock hunt. We, we shot a nice white tail out of a, out of a, Milo field with a muzzle loader during the disabled season with a wounded warrior. And, uh, he had that sucker ready to go out to 300 yards and, and he shot his deer at 40 yards. And then the the very next day, my son and I went out after seeing this buck in the same Milo field as the wounded warriors buck, uh, and got on and he actually shot his deer at 60 yards with a rifle. And then, and then my deer, I shot with a bow every, I mean, we, we try, we try to shoot them out of tree stands, but sometimes you get them in these pastures and it's easier to spot and stock them. You can't put a tree stand in a pasture where there's no trees. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really bouncing all over, <laughs> all over today, but you know, you called your wife, you did your happy dance on this particular deer. When you finally walked up to him, and what was able to put your hands on his rack, you know, pick his head up. What were some of the first thoughts that were going through your mind? I thought he, well, he had good mass. He had, he was heavy antlered, but he had stuff everywhere. And from the moment I saw him, I could, I I couldn't tell you how many points he had or how, what he was going to score. I knew he was over 200 inches and I knew he had more points than I could count you know, as far as just getting different frames of him. So when I got up on him, I grabbed him up, you know, I'm, I'm speechless at this point in time. And, uh, I'm looking at his math and I'm counting times and I'm just praising the Lord that I got the opportunity with a, with my archery equipment. And I, I was just tickled pink. That's, that's the only thing I could speechless and tickled pink. <laughs> so what did he end up scoring? He ended up unofficially just me putting a tape on him. He went two ten and five eight. 
Okay. Well, that's and good. with with a couple tines uh, on the backside, trying to mainframe him was was hard. I didn't know. I didn't know where I saw a mainframe. Somebody else could have saw it a different way. Yeah. And and I'm anxious. There's a, you know, there's there's a, a big buck classic coming up in Kansas here the 21st, 22nd of January. And I'm anxious to take him to a Boone and Crockett guy and see what he scores in that. Right. Cool. Well, man, I tell you, um, ever, ever, I'd say within the last three years, four years, I've really been wanting to, uh, start making more trips out West and, uh, um, you know, hunt these mule deer, hunt elk and antelope and all this stuff. But, um, you know, as someone like myself who really has no experience spot and stalking, um, I, I did some spot and stalking in Nebraska and, uh, um, blew every one of my stocks, uh, going, you know, learning, trying to, you know, make sure the wind was right, make sure I was quiet, you know, all these, all these things that a tree stand hunter like myself really hasn't ever had any experience with. What kind of advice would you give me or anybody who's going on their first spot and stock hunt um, that, that might help them be successful? I would say put in the time to take, take a, a weekend or a couple weekends to go scout the area. If you know you're going on, I mean, some people can't coming from Illinois to, you know, Eastern right. Colorado or Wyoming. It's hard to do that. Uh, where, where I get a weekend every summer, I go out and I just drive around and uh, take my binoculars and my spot and scope and, and try to catch these deer. So I know what's out there and I know what I'm working with. And then once you get into the, into the moment, it's give and take. You can't, you gotta, you gotta take what you can get, but, but give a little when you, it's so hard with the wind. You gotta know your wind. You gotta know if there's any other deer present. Once you get on one of these deer, the best chance you have of getting an arrow in these deer is finding a good hide and getting in between the spot that deer is and the spot that deer wants to be. And if you can have the wind in your favor, get on that trail and get in front of that deer, you're going to be more likely to shoot that deer than if you pushed to him. Cause when he's bedded down, he's, he's looking for predators. He's waiting unless he's completely wore out. I've, I've snuck up on some deer that were completely sleeping and they scared me more than I scared them. Cause I had no idea they were there. But as far as watching your thermals, if, if you're in a, in a hilly area, making sure, you know, your wind's up and you're up and down on your wind as soon as it's in your face, go like heck. But there's been so many times I've got on nice deer and got in front of them and knew this was the time and it was all going to happen to not see the deer stand up and walk a hundred yards behind me and blow them out because they, they took a different path. It, you gotta pattern the deer, know where they're going to go, get in front of them and, uh, and, and really focus when you go to take that shot. That's what, I mean, it was beneficial that I, that I missed the, the deer on, on earlier before I got on this one, because I got a chance to take this deer but I would have been just as happy with that deer. He was a, a stud typical 
and uh, I didn't I didn't focus on a spot. I I got my bow back. I saw all my pins were on the animal and noticed the doe was about to bust me and and tripped it off. And when I did that, I wasn't focused enough to make that shot, and and I ended up missing the animal. So I would say, you know, when you get out and about, make sure that you're comfortable with that stock. Make sure you can always keep your eye on him or have a buddy keep your eye on him so you know where he's going and try to get in front of him and, and, and stay focused on, on the target. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, uh, you, you like to make sure that your, your equipment is working properly, you know, in a tree stand, it's pretty simple. You're going to be shooting down most of the time. And, uh, and your, your body movement isn't, I mean, it's going to be, you're going to be standing straight up and you're going to be shooting down. I mean, that's tree stand hunting. Do you practice different, like on your knees, on your butt, leaning back, like leaning forward? Do you practice a whole bunch of different scenarios? Um, like in the summertime when you're, you're tuning your bow, uh, as far as to emulate what might happen out in the, during a spot and stock? Yeah, we pretty much hit every single scenario that you could think of as far as, you know, laying down, drawing your bow on your back and sitting up and shooting. Uh, I get some guys together and we throw a target out and we play horse. You know, we pick different shots and pick some you're never going to encounter, but it, it's the camaraderie of it and getting your guys out there and having a good time. Uh, I pretty much try to hit every single scenario I can and always run through, you know, Hey, I got a 200 inch deer in front of me. What are the things, what are, what, what's my checklist I need to do to make sure this shot is, is efficient and effective. And, uh, I try to hit 3d tournaments and, uh, the more targets and the more you got your hands on the bow, the more comfortable you're going to be when it comes to crunch time. Gotcha. Well, Zach, man, I, I look at this, I look at this buck and I, I, I will honestly say I'm jealous of you. I hope someday in my life I get the opportunity to uh, even just see something like this in the wild. That would be a win for me. But uh, congratulations to you. And uh, I really appreciate you taking time to, out of your day to uh, come on the, the show and, and talk with us about this deer. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Thanks for the phone call and uh, let me be a part of your podcast. Uh... I'm I'm really happy with this buck and I hope sometime in your lifetime you'll get a chance to sling an arrow at one this size or bigger. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Zach for coming on the show, taking time out of his day, as we all know. And uh huge shout out to Exodus and Deer Lab for uh partnering with this podcast. I, I really appreciate what they've done. Uh and uh there's that. If you guys haven't already, I say this every week and every podcast, make sure you t- tune in to my Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter. I, you know, I do the social media thing. And uh, also, I want to announce the winner of the Deer Lab slash Exodus Trail Camera giveaway that we did for uh, Ben Harshine's uh, Hunter Profile podcast that we did recently. And his name is Kirk Hunter. So Kirk is from Michigan. You have 48 hours to reach out to me. And uh, once, you, uh, once you reach out to me with your address, just you know, send me a message via, via Facebook or you can email ninefingerchronicles at gmail.com. 
with your address and uh, I'll make sure you get that sent out. Now, guys, thank you very much. If your season is still in progress and you're trying to grind it out to the end, be sure to wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.